What's up, Slow Drip listeners? This is your host, Zach. And Matt. And we have an exciting announcement. CisternaCoffeeCo.com is officially up and running. We are live. And everything is in stock. Uh, We've got our mugs ready to ship. Right in time for Christmas. Today's date is December the 7th. Um, So everything is ready for you to go. Um, Bolivian coffee's in stock. Thai coffee's in stock. Everything's freshly roasted. Coffee mugs, decals. Uh, This has been a long time coming. The site is beautiful and uh, ready to go. So... Wherever you're joining us on the Slow Drip journey, whether it's episode one or the end of the season, take a minute and go check out our new website and store and uh, pick up some coffee just in time for the holidays. Buckle in, because we're about to take you on a magical ride, starting first stop up on the Farm the Cup train, Cultivation. It sounded so good in my head. I can do it. I can do a clown horn better. <laughs> it's money, right? So first stop is cultivation. Yeah. As soon as I said it, I didn't like it though. What cultivation? No. First stop. The train. Oh. I just train analogies. Okay, let's back up. This is definitely staying in, though. Okay. So, we are kicking off our Farm to Cup series with a episode about cultivation, a deep dive into all that goes into growing the coffee plant and producing the beans that we bring to your cup. And actually, this is going to be a two-part episode Mm -hmm. or... Is that how you would say it? Well, I was thinking it was like episode one and episode (coughs) 1.2 or 1.5. Or cultivation. Yeah. Cultivation part two. I like that better. I know. So so we're going to take some time to talk about exactly what it takes to grow coffee, where it grows, and why, and go through a little bit of the anatomy of the coffee plant, coffee cherry, its life cycle, Zach, I came across a cool quote when I was doing some research about this in the last couple of days. Someone said that anyone wishing to grow coffee must not only be living in a temperate environment, but also be willing to undertake a long-term labor-intensive commitment to the land and its crop. Coffee is typically grown from seed. Each tree takes on average between three to five years to bear fruit. You know, I was talking to Jim about that yesterday. And he said that they... He purposefully employs women to harvest because they are more gentle, gentle, and they're uh, they take their time, they mm-hmm. care more. Men just rake the cherries off of the so women, and he said some farmers even go as far as painting the nails, painting the women's thumbnails with the correct shade of red of the oh, wow. cherries that they that they want to pick. That's interesting. Yep. Well, from the quote that I just read, it just made me think that um, everything about uh, bringing coffee to market really takes time, patience, and faith. Because without that, you know, you got to really believe that it's going to be a good crop, that it's going to sell, that it's 
Yeah. Um, so uh, that's kind of one of the first things that I, I was um, really thinking about. So jumping in, you want to talk about anatomy? Let's do it. Okay. So coffee bean, which is coffee cherry, and the Co- plant. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm to start with the, the, uh, the coffee tree. And throughout all of our research, uh, and from here on forward, we'll call them coffee trees, but we're really talking about a shrub uh, tree that stands no more than seven, eight feet tall at the max. And, um, but produces, and, and it's a kind of a shrub form with vegetation coming off of the trunk from the, the base, but uh, ostensibly this is the coffee tree. Coffee tree starts its life as a seed, which germinates and grows, and that will be kept and cultivated in a, um, like a greenhouse or a nursery setting for up to three years while it grows into a sapling. The next life stage from there is the sapling, which is then, that's about three to five, you know, three years old, saplings are transplanted into a working farm. Um, And then from there... But it takes a couple of years for it to... Yep. After that, it could be another two years before it begins to even produce any cherries at all. And the first year's harvest is really nothing to talk about or write home about. It's uh, usually a quarter of what future harvest would be for the uh, producing tree. So second harvest is really... Yes. Like that's the magic. The magic number, magic one, is the second harvest for sure. Um, Well, we're talking about coffee uh, cherries and coffee trees from here on out. We're definitely talking about the Arabica plant, not the Robusta variety. Uh, They do have similar growth um, in anatomy, but just so that our listeners know, we're not talking about Robusta coffee at all. Robusta coffee is, it's it's easier to grow, it's less susceptible to diseases and whatever, And, and it's what is mainly used for uh, it's a stronger coffee. It's got mm-hmm. a higher uh, caffeine concentrate, um, but it's also more bitter. And it's used more in instant coffee and like commercial mass production coffee. Yes, uh, more more than the instant coffee, and then I think like creating like coffee flavor extracts and that sort of thing. But mm. if you were to take robusta beans, which are typically bigger than arabica beans anyway roast them in our roaster, grind them, and brew a pour-over of Robusta coffee. It would be very bitter. It, would, it tastes like wet wood chips. It is kind of the, um, not mulchy, but I think about like like damp pine chips would be kind of the flavor. I don't know. I mean, I've had instant coffee, but I don't know that. I mean, I've never used Robusta coffee beans to make coffee how I normally make it so right I don't think it sounds that appealing at all no I have no desire to eat wet pine chips no um (laughs) however robusta coffee does uh make up 30 percent of the entire world crop of coffee Mm. and Brazil is its leading producer of robusta coffee and Vietnam is the second leading producer of robusta coffee in the world so the majority of Robusta coffee taken to market is in Brazil and Vietnam. What percentage would you say 
becomes instant coffee? Um, I don't. That's a hard one to say. I don't know, hundred percent. Um, I would imagine it'd be a high, pretty high percentage. Right. Nearly all of it would go into uh, instant coffee, and like Nescafe or. Um, I'm now blanking on the one. There's actually one instant coffee that I'll actually tolerate and like. Sanka, is that it? Nescafe, Sanka, Sanka. I think is. You get some instant coffee crystals and you sprinkle it on a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Um, it's actually pretty good. So, coming from the guy who never eats sugar. Uh, yes, I know. I shouldn't anyway, um, unless I want to crash. But that one's for free. So if you ever, you know, get a chance to get some instant coffee crystals, you should give it a try. So let's get back to talking about Arabica coffee and the coffee tree. Once a, a tree begins to produce into the second harvest, it's sort of a, the way I was. I think about it is that the process is really fast and then really really slow. Mm. So when the rainy season begins in areas where the coffee is produced and grown. Um, once that starts and the coffee trees get that first influx of a rainy season and they, they know that you know there's more water available, they begin producing flowers like crazy. And along all of the trees or all of the branches that uh, come off of the main trunk, they're going to produce these like calyx whorls of white flowers all the way up in clusters of six or eight. And all of those flowers, coffee is a self-pollinating plant. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to have pollinators, but like we'll see when we go to Jim's, he does a lot of other um, fruit growing around to encourage other pollinators. So bees and other things coming in definitely help but they're not absolutely necessary to pollinate the flowers. Once the flowers are pollinated, within 24 to 36 hours, they're going to wilt and fall off of the um, branch. And the pollinated flower is going to begin to develop the coffee cherry. And from there, let's see, it can take, I think, up to eight months for the cherry to develop. That's quite lengthy. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this is backtracking a little bit. If we were to take one of our green beans that is unroasted and plant it, would it sprout? That is a good question. I know that Jim has taken some of his and done that, but I also think that there's something... I think the ones that he's planted were like unprocessed. Once they go through the processing, which we'll talk about later, it changes the composition. Mm, um, that makes sense. And so I, I don't think that once, once it undergoes that processing to go from ripe red cherry to green coffee bean, it's a, a viable seed anymore at that point. Gotcha. But um, before that, like I know he's cut the, the pulp open and planted those seeds and they have grown. So he's got, around his apartment, he's got a lot of little seedlings that he's starting just for the next generation or to replace one if he loses a tree or whatever. That's pretty cool. 
So all, sorry. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So all around the, um, all of the branches coming off of the main trunk, you're going to get green coffee cherries beginning to grow and develop throughout the rainy season. And like I said, they're going to be in whorls of six or eight cherries tightly clustered around the branch of the coffee tree. And they're just going to continue to go out. I mean, they, they produce tons and tons and tons of flowers. And I've not yet been at Gems or any other coffee farm. When they're flowering? When they're flowering. Jim has sent me pictures of his before. And it looks like literally he had a snow oh, that's descend cool. on. I mean, it just looks like this blanket of white snow laying on all of his plants. And um, I would imagine that it smells amazing. Yeah, I read somewhere it smells like, like jasmine. Mm-hmm. It's very jasmine-like. Mm-hmm. I know there's some places that are beginning to also uh, encourage um, apiaris to set up beehives around coffee mm-hmm. farms. And they're actually making coffee honey. Now that, that sounds amazing. That does sound really good. So that's on the bucket list to, to, to pick up. So, to try. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really, really cool. Um, so like I said, it takes about eight months for the coffee cherry to develop and become ripe. When it does, it will be about the size of a thumbnail or a little bit bigger, depending on the variety and will have turned from green to deep, deep red or yellow, depending on the variety type. And maybe that's why, like you were saying, painting a thumbnail, the exact shade of the coffee mm-hmm. cherry, um, comes in handy so that you can make sure that you're harvesting just the right ones. Yeah, and he said it was, Jim said it was very meticulous. Well, and for those that don't know who Jim is, you'll get to hear from him next episode. Yes. Because we're going to talk with him um, kind of a get a one-on-one <clears throat> from a uh, an actual co- coffee farmer, which is going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. But so Jim said that um, you have to be very meticulous mm-hmm. about which cherries you pick because like, even if the backside of it is still green. It can affect the flavor in right. a negative way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk about the anatomy of the cherry specifically in just a second. But just to kind of finish up some of the life cycle and anatomy of the, the coffee tree. Um, like I said before, you kind of think fast, fast, slow, slow. Within you know, three days, the entire flowering and pollinating of the, the cherries is done. And the flowers have withered and dropped. And then it's a really long slow steady process to develop those cherries so the flowering when a flower pops up usually happens twice a year right mm-hmm. but they're only there for a few days correct do they all flower at the same time pretty much pretty much so it's really unfortunate for those neighboring bees that didn't get a chance to Get some of the, <laughs> what if they were late? The they were like on va- they're on vacation and they come back and they see all the wilted flowers. Like, oh, we missed it. We got to wait six more months. I would imagine that in a situation like that, it would be sort of an equatorial climate where they're in stages. And so, like, an apiarist could move his hives. Oh, no, that, that so, would be like, cool. when one hectare is blooming, the hives are there 
and then once they start to fruit, move the hives to the next hectare that might bloom. But like a, a farmer like Jim, where he's got multiple kinds of uh, crop, mm-hmm. and he's got all kinds of stuff. Yeah, tangerines, bananas. Um, I can never remember the name of that, that fruit we tried last night that grows directly off the trunk of the oh, tree. That was actually pretty good. It was. Um, he's got a bunch of those planted as well, which is all to encourage healthy pollinators. He's a very organic, biologic uh, coffee grower, which is exciting and cool. So one other thing to mention about the, the ripe cherry and the harvesting that's important because of the way that it's harvested, a tree could be harvested five times in a single season. So mm. when you send out someone to go harvest and they're looking for the exact right shade of cherry, they're just going to pick those off of the, the branches leaving the others and yeah. leave the others and then come back through in a week and get the next run. And so like we were talking with Jim this morning and harvest is beginning here in Bolivia for him, you know, yesterday began yesterday. So they'll go through and it'll be several weeks as the cherries continue to develop before, um, it's all done. So they'll get the first ones that are ready and begin the drying process. Then they'll get the next set, et cetera, et cetera, until they're all harvested. It could take, Several weeks. That's crazy. Mm. He said he's only got two ladies working for him right now. But a couple of more that are interested, I think. But when uh, we meet with Francisco Monami too, he's he's going to bring a lot about that as well. And I think he knows some professional coffee harvesters that are really, really careful. Uh, but when you think about... You think about that, like again, like time, patience, faith, and just going through and being really meticulous, taking just the right coffee cherries at a time. Um, it's really kind of, it's a fascinating way to, to cultivate or, you know, grow a crop. It's not like anything else. I mean, well, it forces you to slow down. It does, which is lovely. It's kind of a, a nice, and that's a good principle to think about, like, when you're, you're having that morning cup of coffee, we're yeah. going to hit some stats towards the end of this episode for, for sure, but when you're having that morning cup of coffee and you think about all that goes into cultivating the, the bean to get to your cup, and just take a minute and slow down. Mm-hmm. You know, center yourself for the day. I'll be rushing out the door. All the life's problems are going to be waiting for you anyway. Just think about those that are growing the coffee take a minute slow down that's my recommendation anyway so let's talk about the coffee cherry for a minute you're gonna have to take which i mean you basically took us through that but you're gonna have to take us through well this is kind of my bailiwick i love you know the botany and um you know the biology side of all of this too so um when we're talking about the coffee cherry at this point we're talking about the ripe red or yellow depending on the variety coffee cherry of the arabica plant and what it, what it is is as a cherry it has an outer skin which is kind of like a, a cherry fruit um, the outer skin's fairly thick um, and fibrous and you don't really want to eat that but if you cut it in half inside a coffee cherry there 
typically two green beans or seeds, which become coffee beans. Um, and unless it's a pea berry. And uh, have you heard of pea berry coffee? Nope. So pea berry coffee is a special variety. Typically pea berries come out of, I think Tanzanian pea berry coffee is one of the most famous. And basically it's a variety that only has a single seed inside the cherry. Uh, all of the, the coffee that we'll see while we're here can at times produce pea berries and basically like in early development. So the, the two seeds inside the cherry are twins, genetic twins. And what will happen is one will absorb the other one inside the fruit mm. and just you'll just get one almost perfectly round seed uh, inside that fruit which is the fruit itself the pulp is called the mucilage and once it's fully developed it's very sweet um and and like cherry like um so typically like we're talking saying two seeds inside uh unless you're, you're getting a pea berry which is then a single seed inside the the mucilage and so that that pulpy fruit is sweet you can taste it we'll be able to taste it in a couple of days when we're up there pick some cherries and and pop them in our mouths and see how it tastes. And I've heard that I've never had a coffee cherry. Um, well, really, really, you know, once a grower has really dialed into his plot of land, he can tell when they're ready based on the sugar content. And I would imagine it's a lot like a vintner. You know, if you go out to like Napa, mm -hmm. oh uh, yeah, and you know vintners are going and they're going to crush a grape and then put it on a refractometer and see what the sugar content is to know when it's ready to harvest. And I think that they're really good growers that are really in tune to their land. They can tell by the taste as well when those cherries are ready to, to be picked. So surrounding the two seeds is what's called the parchment. And the parchment is going to remain on the seed bean through processing. And that's basically the, the parchment is the chaff that we see when yeah. we when we, we roast, roast it. it. Um, and so if you kind of think about it as a cross section, you have skin, mucilage, then a very thin parchment, and then inside that is the coffee bean. And then when it's all done, and we'll talk all about processing in another episode, certain processes leave the, the parchment intact and it really adheres to the bean. Some processes leave it kind of loosely surrounding the bean and that does affect flavor of the eventual cup of coffee down the road. So, and then from there when it's processed, then we get it, we roast it, and it comes to your pantry. How much coffee, I read yesterday, that the American, typical America drinks like 64 billion cups of coffee a year. That's a lot of coffee. That is a lot. I did not read that, but... I think it was 400 million a day. Doesn't surprise me. Which is, which is just... Because the coffee tree does not produce that much mm -hmm. coffee beans in a single season. Right. So there's I, a, I mean, would you say after everything, after it's been processed, the dry seed... Is what a couple pounds? I think two two pounds two to 
what I read was two to 10 pounds per tree per year of green beans. And then, you know, then you're going to lose a little bit of weight when you roast it mm-hmm. um, to, to, you know, get it ready to be made into coffee. So, you know, really we're talking somewhere between, oh gosh, my math's not that quick right now, but essentially between two and one and a half and five pounds of roasted coffee could come off of one tree in a year. And we consume 400 million cups of coffee in a day per capita. Do you know that more women drink coffee than men? I did not know that. What else you got? Because you did a lot of different research than what I did. I did random facts. Right. So, <clears throat> and I'm pulling these numbers off the, just out of memory. Um, and I read like 67% of American women drink coffee as opposed to like 64% of men. But a, I mean, and, and it's in the mid 60s. I can't remember the exact number. We'll say 65% of Americans drink coffee, mm-hmm. which I, I thought would be higher. That sounds about right. 65? Yeah. Is the median average? Yeah. That sounds right to what I would have assumed. Maybe closer to 70, but, you know, not everybody drinks coffee. And yeah. some people prefer iced coffee or... I mean, that's still coffee. Right. But, um, uh, well, since we're talking about drinking coffee, what are we drinking right now during this episode? I don't remember. What did you say it was? This is a Bolivian. Um, oh, this is the one we had the other day. Yes. Yeah, yeah this is the Catutani. Uh, from Alto Tostado. In the last episode, we were drinking the Ethiopian. Zach's making an angry face because I took the last of it. Um, but yeah, so this is the second variety that we picked up from Alto Tostado um, earlier this week. I like the Ethiopian better. Well, it's <clears throat> it's brighter. Not that I don't like this one. Mm-hmm. This one. This one's got a... I think it's got coconut, like coconut. I was about to say it's got some kind of chocolate going on in there. The the tasting notes on the bag also mention cherry and almond. This was the one that I thought was like a Bakewell tart. Mm, Yeah, almond, cherry, and honey. Honey, but it's gonna kind of more of a a roasty finish. I I get honey and Mm -hmm. almond, maybe maybe that's what we're tasting, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the chocolate. More the dark cherry. So, yeah, I like it. I mean, Alto Tostado, two for two for me. They're both that we got were great. Um, and what's great about it is they're distinctly different. And their facility is super cool. Yes, it is. And they have a ProBot, which is on our dream list of coffee roasters. Dream list. One day, we'll move that to uh, an actual list one day. One day. But yeah, their, their ProBot roaster is absolutely gorgeous, too. With the matte black finish and gold chrome. I like how they had it. Um, yeah, all the polished brass fittings. And it was, yeah, it looked really nice. Mm-hmm. Man, that street noise is heavy today. Well, it's uh, afternoon, afternoon traffic, not evening traffic. Yeah. So. Well, so... <clears throat> 
I like how they had it all fenced off. Like they had, like it was it was just a super cool workstation. They had their computer for their roasting profiles. They had the, the bags of coffee, um, you know, out and labeled and had their scale. It's was, it was cool. It'd be really cool to be. I wonder if he ever texts Jim back. Yeah, because we did ask if we could roast on it. You don't know us. We're two guys from America. But let us use your. Can we use your forty thousand dollar roaster? <laughs> yeah. Maybe he did write back and said yes. <laughs> Maybe he wrote back and said stupid gringos. No way. Uh, maybe we'll never know. Uh, but we do like their coffee, and so um, it's good stuff. Let's talk about the coffee belt. Okay. The coffee belt is the region between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, basically all the way around the earth, the equatorial belt, um, but it's called the coffee belt when we're talking about climate for growing and cultivating coffee because it tends to have the best conditions. And we're going to kind of dial into some of those now, but we're going to talk about uh, rainfall, soil content, makeup, uh, sun, exposure, elevation, and temperature, kind of the big ones that I want to kind of hit as we, we make this journey around the world mm-hmm. on the equator. Uh, so coffee, like, you know, as you can imagine, being equatorial, it needs fairly warm climates. Um between 20 and 27 degrees Celsius, um, it can tolerate temperatures as high as 32, which is like we're pushing 90 degrees at that point Fahrenheit. And you get to, what is it, 33 is 90? My math again. 30, 33 times 1.8. Right. So Zach's going to get what that conversion is for us in Fahrenheit. 91.4. Yeah. So it's close. Yeah. Um, so it... Basically, coffee, again, is one of those things where part of the day it likes full sun, part of the day it likes shade. It doesn't like to be hot all the time, but it can tolerate uh, some really warm days within this whole process. And um, generally, some of the best coffees are grown at higher elevations, um, basically between 2,000 meters above sea level and 600 meters above sea level. So about 1800 feet to 6,000 feet. And some of the better or more complex flavored coffees are going to be grown at those higher altitudes. Um, And for the longest time, it was thought that that affected the, the altitude itself affected the flavor, but it turns out that it's more likely that just the high altitude has more optimal growing conditions warm parts of the day, cool parts of the day. Mm. Um, growers can use the mountain itself, use the terrain to provide shade, you know, depending on if it's a south or north or east or west facing slope. Uh, they can dictate how much shade it gets. Other other farmers are going to have to use, uh, like Jim has some very large tall trees around his plantation and his farm. So they provide shade for part of the day. Um, and then some other places that advertise like shade grown coffee are actually using uh, some kind of man-made structure uh, that they would stretch out and basically tent up the overall of the, the trees at different times. 
So kind of a tenor, how, temperamental. How does, how does shade grown coffee differ? Well, it's interesting. In, in, in taste. Well, so when you see a coffee in the store that's advertised as shade grown, I think it's kind of a misnomer because in reality, all good coffee is shade grown. Is shade grown. Whether it's artificial shade or like natural terrain or trees. Na- yeah, trees natural trees. ecosystem. So you have shade provided by terrain based on where it's grown on the mountainside. Shade provided by surrounding trees. Surrounding trees in the ecosystem or artificial shade that um, people just are putting tents up over it. So it probably wouldn't be that. I don't think it makes that much of a difference. We should do a comparison. Okay. Or if you are a big fan of shade-grown coffee and you think we're dead wrong, write us and let us know what you think and uh, we'll get down to the bottom of this. Yep. Sounds like a plan to me. Anything else you want to add about shade-grown coffee before we talk about rainfall? No. Let's move on to rainfall. Well, yeah. And like we said, all coffee is necessarily shade-grown, whether it's advertised as such or not. That's where that's my take on. Okay. Rainfall. Yes. Before you jump into that, this uh-huh. is my take. Kenyan coffee that is grown in the Northern Highlands. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place. Versus somewhere like where we are uh-huh. that's close to a rainforest. I mean, the difference in rainfall here versus there. It's pretty significant, right? Not necessarily. I mean, once they're in the, we they're coming out of here in Bolivia. They're coming out of the rainy season, mm-hmm. uh, and in the Kenyan Highlands, it also has a rainy season and a, and a drier season. the The coffee that's grown on the mountains around, like Mount Kenya, at high elevation, it's in a temperate environment that it gets maybe like a steady amount of rain all the time. So in that sense, yeah, it does affect um, the the growth of the the coffee, which, yeah, okay, I'll re- I'll take back what I said. Thank you. Yeah. So temperate climate, like in Kenya, even though it's equatorial, it's going to get a steady rainfall all year round, and that's going to affect how the coffee cherry develops differently than somewhere like here in Bolivia, where you have a it's kind of a single sp- season. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a sprint from you know, flower to development, uh, where six to eight months it's taken in as much water as it can quickly. Soil has a lot to do with that. Uh, so, um, just quick note on rainfall coffee does best in uh, an area that gets between a hundred and 200 centimeters of rain a year. Um, no more, no less. It's kind of, again, one of those, they're finicky plants, aren't they? They are. And in some ways, they can last, they can live a hundred years. Uh, so once they're well established, they, you know, they kind of are going to be around for a little bit, but to really like dial in a good cup of coffee, they are pretty finicky. So you got to have a lot of conditions just right to get really, really good specialty coffee. You want to know where my brain went when you were talking about elevation and the effects of elevation on the plant? I went to, what if I could build some kind of a biodome in my backyard where I can control 
the pressure. I don't know how because I'm mm-hmm. not a scientist, but how cool would that be? So and then grow coffee plants mm-hmm. where I can control the temperature, yep, the pressure, the water. Right. So that goes back to what I was saying that we have thought for so long that elevation and therefore the pressure affects like you, I think that's what you're getting to. You talk about pr- oh, air, yeah, air yeah. pressure. Well, see, my brain was off on this other tangent whenever you finished that. Thought. Yeah. So, but I remember you talking right. about it now, but, but that's a good point to, to bring back up. Could we create an artificial environment that would be absolutely ideal for coffee? A couple more parameters to, to nail down with that, because like you, you were assuming higher elevation pressure, yeah. that's what it needs. Turns out these higher elevation locations have all of the optimal growing conditions for particularly for like specialty coffee varieties. Right. So we were, we just finished talking about rainfall. When you talk about soil, soil content, I think the soil is a really, really big part of all of this. And that's where you get the biggest, um, variation in flavor from, from varieties. It's not necessarily a hundred percent what varieties are planted. You know, there's a different kind of uh, Arabica Katura that's grown here in Bolivia than what I know is grown in like Haiti. Um, in Haiti, they grow Arabica Katura Bourbon. And here it's a different Katura variety, which probably is different from an Ethiopian highland or a Kenyan. So geographically limited varieties, um, but then also soil content, like in Southeast Asia, from Burma, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, all of that terroir across that mountain range that spans the Indochina Peninsula has very specific special properties that tend to make those coffees six to ten times less acidic just because of the soil. So I think soil is a big part of all of this, which if you figure out what you want, we could replicate Mm-hmm. Um, coffee grows best in soils that are <clears throat> volcanic red soil, not a lot of clay, uh, in that, or in a really good loamy soil. And, and loamy soil is just a really evenly mi- mix of sand, clay, and silt and humus, which is basically decaying, uh, organic matter like thatch and, uh, leaf decay and that kind of stuff. So you get a good, rich, dark, uh, loamy soil or one that was high in kind of a volcanic content. Um, it's going to do really, really well. So what about sandy soil? Well, I think like we have at home, right? So like I said too, I mean, I really think that soil is a big part of all of this because with the rainfall and elevation, you know, you think about elevation and rainfall being these two big factors in climate for growing coffee. Um, but really, I'm, I'm kind of be team soil here. I think it all goes back to the soil because you want a soil that can absorb a lot of water really quickly. But then when it hits its threshold, it can shed the excess really, really quickly. So it hits its carrying capacity and then easily sheds off all of the rest. If you get torrential downpours and you don't have a coffee farm that's really set up 
to get rid of that excess, waterlogged roots are going to definitely mess up the crop, change the flavor of the bean as it's developing and all of that. So you really want to try to avoid any kind of standing water. You want water to be quickly absorbed into the soil and then all of the excess running yeah. off as quickly as possible. Yeah. So like a sponge, like if you're running a sponge under the sink, a dry sponge under the sink, it gets completely saturated and then sheds the rest off. And that's the kind of soil you really want for growing coffee. And then what minerals go into that, basically whatever potassium, magnesium, other things in volcanic soil or uh, breakdown of organic matter. And anything else about climate? Did I miss anything? About the climate? No. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. It was kind of a lot. It was. It was rapid fire. Should I have slowed down? No, I think you're right. All right. So, um, yeah, so that'll kind of wrap up what we're talking about climate-wise. Um, there is a ton more that you could dig into. Again, I'm definitely team soil on this one. I think that the soil itself in these different geographic places around the coffee belt make the coffee what it is um, because it, it's going to dictate moisture retention, mineral content growth. And so, and then, like we said, the, the elevation that it's grown typically tends to be um, one of those that the higher elevations have all of those kind of properties that you're looking for. I think a unique thing, this is worth mentioning as we wrap up climate, I think a unique thing about the coffee that we're looking at here in Bolivia is that it's like at the it's low mean, end. Yeah. Yeah, it's like 600 to 700 meters above sea level. It's definitely on the lower end, but because of the climate and the, the valley and the way that um, the weather comes off of the Andes shade grown. and, and, and <laughs> all of that, um, this kind of Bolivian lowland coffee has some really distinct and unique properties and is really, really good. Even though, you know, someone might look at it and go, well, it's, it's not Highland. So they yeah. automatically mark right. it out, which there again, that's, you know, that's a good point too. You know, don't, don't always make assumptions based on what you think, because, this tip, this is a lowland coffee that don't judge a coffee bean by where it's grown. Right. What part of town it comes from may not always matter or something. I was reaching there. Yeah. Um, it's forced. It was, um, but don't, don't judge a bean by its cover <laughs> or where it's or grown. do because you should only pick them when they're ripe. Mm, that, mm. Depends on what part of the process we're talking about. That works or it doesn't. Um, so let's hit a couple points of agriculture and types of cultivation. Just Are you talking about statistics or what? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. But, okay. Uh, so like we did talk about um, shade-grown coffee. That's a thing. Um, and again, I think it's more a marketing thing than anything else because all coffees are shade grown at some level um, but in our research we I did come across that there are some places that are beginning to play around with containers grown like raised bed coffee plantations and that sort of thing again that would be small like small lot or micro lot I don't think you could do that on a large scale um, 
there's large form agriculture where you're talking about these coffee plantations that are just millions of trees, right? Mm-hmm. Big, big, uh, big corporate coffee farms like in uh, Brazil um, and around there that are producing basically all of the grocery store. Folgers. Folgers, yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to mention names, but you know what I'm talking about. Dunkin' Donuts. So let's go ahead and just name them all. Uh, I'm just kidding. Here we go. But yeah, so all, all kind of like the big box grocery store coffees are going to come from large form ag farms. And they are going to be, um, they're going to be harvested by machinery, most likely. Uh, so not as much care as you were going to get with a specialty coffee harvest. Um, they're probably sprayed um, all the time. Not truly organic. Not organic or biologic coffees at all. So that's on one side of the pendulum. The other side is what we look for and prefer, which is small lot, micro lot, specialty coffee varieties that we can you know, get to know the growers, get to know their passion, invest in them, and, uh, and bring that coffee to you as well. And those are, you know, going to be, you know, more organic or biologic. Um, we talked about micro lots before. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the other side of the pendulum. And that's where we prefer to definitely, that's the only area that we're looking for coffee. Um, and, uh, you know, some coffee farms are going to have like drip irrigation. I think we'll see at Walters when we go there tomorrow, all of his, he's got a drip irrigation tank at the very top of the mountain hillside. So he pumps water from the valley up to it, and then... It just trickles yeah, down. Yeah, it's gravity-fed yeah. to all of his plants. So he can artificially control how much water they get. Uh, some farms like Jim's right now is dependent solely on rainfall. Jim's is eventually going to be drip irrigation as well. And the cool thing about Jim's is that he's going to basically create a man-made pond on the property and put native catfish in it. And then as they grow up, they'll produce guano, fertilize the water that he'll then use a solar pump to pump to the top of his hill and use drip irrigation and gravity feed to fertilize and water organically all of his coffee. So that's coming probably in the next year or two that, that he's going to be able to do that. Um, most specialty coffees, like what we're talking about and looking for and what we're going to be visiting and seeing the next couple of days, are not monoculture, meaning it's not the only plant grown, but like gems, fruit trees, citrus trees, banana trees, uh, this other, like guarapo fruit, I think is what it is, um, are all grown together. And Jim also is growing cacao on his farm. So he's got coffee trees and cacao trees growing at the same time. And uh, I think they're producing at different times, but on the same land. So again, all of those different things are bringing parts to the, the ecosystem and the ecology of the coffee to really maximize the, the coffee tree, its growth, production of good coffee cherries and green beans. You're doing great, Matt. Thank you. I have not offered a lot to this episode, but it it you're doing fantastic. It feels like drinking from a fire hose a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but I, maybe maybe I, a I'm trying to keep up with myself here. 
Uh, ready for some quick stats? Let's do it. All right. So we talked about... The, Ooh, let's guess. You ask and I'll guess. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see if I can stump you on one. We did talk about that um, it, a coffee seedling to sapling can take about three years. And yep. then from sapling to producing is three to five. So from you know when it's germinated to beginning to produce cherries is five years. Coffee trees can live up to 100 years, but they're only productive between, do you know what years? I'll say 7 and 20. 7 and 25. Ooh. After about 25 years, the coffee tree begins to go into its resting phase or decline phase. Uh, so it declines for 75 years? <laughs> it peaks out early. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like some of us. <laughs> it just, just <laughs> peaked long ago, and now we're just kind of in that resting phase. And <laughs> I identify as a resting phase coffee tree. You, yeah. I peaked out at 25, and the rest is just downhill. Hey. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no, that's I don't. Personally, I think I'm just now getting to my peak at 37. My knees are in their resting phase. They are. After running up that bell tower today, you <laughs> <laughs> your knees need to be in a resting phase. It's starting to crack. So we went to a bell tower that's uh, in the cathedral right outside of our hotel, and Zach decided to run up the spiral staircase. Whoa, 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 go back. There's a reason. The bells were ringing. That's right. Zach ran up four flights Four, five. It's taller than our hotel, so six. Six S flights yeah. worth of spiral stairs. How many floors do we have? Four. So, yeah, yeah, at least six. Yeah. It was a lot of stairs very fast. And we went all the way to the clock. Yes. So maybe even seven. Yeah, we were over the observation tower. Hence, your knees are in their resting phase. Yeah. Mm. No more running for me. Do you remember how many square feet? 1.4. 1 1.4 square feet for every cup of coffee. Not every cup, not every... Not every plant, not every tree, every cup. So then we go back to, what was it, 400 million? 400 cups million cups of, of coffee. A day. A day in America. Let's do that math real quick. So that's coming out to be six point something million square feet of land. Right? Times 1.4... 560 million mm -hmm. square feet of land cultivated every day for our coffee consumption. A lot of land to, to produce the coffee that we like to enjoy. Um, and there's, there's a lot of scientists are concerned about that, um, that we're running out of land um, and that you know, there is going to be some climate change that's going to affect coffee growing seasons. Um, but really, I think that it it kind of lends more towards finding areas like where we are in Santa Cruz, San Jose, and Buena Vista, Bolivia, that <clears throat> may be lowland, but they have all of the right uh, growing conditions, perfect temperature, wet season, uh, humidity, uh, soil content. Yep. So uh, I think that we're going to be okay there, but it does take a lot of land to to uh, keep up with the, the coffee um, consumption. So of the two world. cups I've had. This is my third cup that I just finished. Mm -hmm. So three point, no, 4.2. Yes. Square feet of land. 
yeah. just today. Yeah. When you put it in, into terms like that, it's kind of staggering. And we talked about uh, healthy coffee trees. Do you remember how many cherries a year a healthy coffee tree can produce? 2,000 cherries per tree per year. Or assuming they're not pea berry, that's 4,000 coffee beans. Mm, yeah. Now, this is where it breaks down because I didn't look up or I didn't do the math on uh, how many beans go into a cup of coffee to know how, like, basically, what, how many cups of coffee can one coffee tree produce in a year um, from that 4,000 beans? Well, let's find out. <clears throat> and while you're looking that up, uh, then I'm, I'm going to go over a couple other quick stats. We did mention that a mature, healthy producing coffee tree can produce between one and 12 pounds of beans a year. Um, so we got that wrong a minute ago because I thought it was one to 12 pounds of cherries, but that would be it's two of, of dry bean. Yeah. Two to 24 pounds of cherry, one to 12 pounds of dry beans. But those are green beans, and then when they're roasted, they're going to lose some. They're going to increase in volume, but they're going to lose some mass. And we're going to get into why that is in another episode. So stay tuned for uh, the roasting episode coming down the road. And the last stat that I have while you're looking up uh, what you're looking up, there can be as many as 500 plants per hectare. Which Jim said... A lot more. Right. But and I think I'm, I'm 100% sure it's 500 plants per hectare, which is, that's two and a half acres. A hectare is two and a half acres. So um, that makes a lot more sense that you can get 500 trees uh, on an acre. And again, too, that's not monoculture. So between the rows of coffee trees, you're going to have fruit trees, citrus trees, all kinds of other stuff. So, so, it says that 135.8 coffee beans goes into one eight ounce cup. Well, I figured high. Yeah. Because whenever it said, well, depending on well, the size yeah. of the coffee cup, but depending on cup, depending eight, on 18, bean gram, size. 18 grams of coffee weighs, or 18 grams of coffee is roughly 135 coffee beans. Okay. And that's a good median average considering that uh, like some varieties, like Ethiopian varieties, are smaller. smaller. And some like Kenyan varieties or Tanzanian varieties are larger beans. So, yeah, I think that, that makes sense. 135 beans per 18 grams? Per 18 grams. Okay. So then so, you figure... Uh, divide 4,000... By 135. 4,000? Yeah, that's 4,000 coffee beans per plant per year. Twenty nine. Twenty nine cups of coffee per, per coffee plant? plant. Yeah, that's low. That seems low. No, I think that's about right. Five hundred plants a hectare. I feel yeah. so bad for drinking so much coffee. When you put it in terms like that, yeah, one tree in its life, in, in one year of its life, one tree produces 30 cups of coffee. For That's most average healthy Americans, 
That's one cup of coffee a day for a month. So your your coffee, you're drinking co- one month of coffee. Is you're drinking the equivalent of twelve plants of coffee per year. And you know what that reminded me of? What? That scene from The Prince's Bride, where he's in the pit of despair. Do you know what that sound is? I just sucked one year of your life away. In one month, you consume the entire fruit production of one tree of coffee. And on that note, it may be time for a break. (laughs) What do you think? All right, let's do it. All right. Make sure to check out next week's episode. Uh, We're going to be diving into cultivation a little deeper. Um, with Jim Harriman and Walter Walter Bass Warner. There it is. Yep. Um, We'll be joining them tomorrow at Walter's farm and hanging out and talking specifically about coffee cultivation here in Santa Cruz and kind of the pitfalls, the things that they've run into, the challenges they've had um, as they're they're beginning this whole process. Jim's coffee plantation his trees are in the five to seven year uh, growth span, really hitting prime production. And Walter is a, a younger gentleman who became inspired after seeing Jim's farm and has planted his own. So he will be coming into his first harvest production next season. Uh, so we'll sit down with them. We'll kind of get a, a deeper dive into really what it takes to a personal look at right the cultivation to, to cultivate coffee specifically here in Bolivia so and cultivation cultivating the relationship that we have with them that's right so definitely one that you don't want to miss tune in next week for that episode as well tune in like an old radio show thank you <laughs>